the temptation in the wilderness. Luke chapter 4, verses 1 to 13. My beloved brethren and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ, we have come, brethren and sisters, in our consideration of our Lord's life from the, for the time when he came from baptism and was led and driven immediately into the wilderness to be tempted of the diabolos. And it's that which we want to consider this evening. It's for that reason, brethren and sisters, that last Tuesday week at our baptismal night, we endeavoured to speak in a general way of our Lord's temptations. We felt that that was necessary to, and I think a very good prelude for our consideration of the detailed record tonight of that temptation in the wilderness. Now having come now to consider that temptation in some detail during the past couple of weeks, brethren and sisters, let me tell, say this to you, I haven't resolved any of the old difficulties and I've learnt by reading all the commentaries in the Brotherhood that nobody else has either. They're all there, they remain. There are still some unanswered questions. So if you've come along here tonight expecting those to be, to be solved and unravelled, you're going to be disappointed. You know, brethren and sisters, so much time has been spent on speculating as who this tempter was and how it came that he had this sort of power or that power, that I do believe that in all the hours that have been spent there, that a lot has been missed in regard to the very positive things which can be learnt from this record. And in that, I think, tonight, with God's blessing, we shall be enriched. It's a marvellous record. Marvellous from the viewpoint, brethren and sisters, of the power of our Heavenly Father's Spirit and of His Word that dwelt with His Son. And as we go through life and succumb day after day to the powers of our flesh, we marvel the more at the wonder of what is here presented to us, that a mortal man should emerge from such intense temptation, perfect, and to go on through life being perfect, being tempted again and again in exactly the same manner as he was here, though, of course, the temptation taking various forms. Now, I want you to note, first of all, what Luke does. We often say that when we read the first chapter of Luke, that he puts all things in order. Well, he doesn't. And tonight we've got abundant proof of that. Luke doesn't set out to put everything down in order in that sense. What he does purport to do is that when he does record something, brethren and sisters, all the facts of that incident are in order and that he puts it in a certain context to impress us with something. Now in the record of Luke chapter 4, he leaves out a great deal of history because he wants to make this point and it's a beautiful point. He opens up chapter 4 by telling us that Jesus went into the temptation full of the Holy Spirit. And there, brothers and sisters, was the reason for his success, and there alone. So Luke records that he went into the temptation full of the Holy Spirit. In verse 14, Luke records that Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit. What's he trying to tell us? that the Spirit was absolutely triumphant. And if that's not enough, what Luke then does is to leave out a whole batch of history and he takes us immediately into the synagogue at Nazareth, which of course came much later in the Lord's life, and records that incident next. Why does he do that? Because in verse 18, the Lord stood up in that synagogue and said, The Spirit of Yahweh is upon me. And there's your reason. And so Luke beautifully detaching that history, linking it up with the synagogue at Nazareth. He goes into the wilderness full of the Spirit. He comes out in the power of that Spirit, 
stands up in the synagogue and says, the spirit of, the, of Yahweh is upon me. And who's going to deny it? With that success behind him. Who could deny that? What man could emerge from that temptation unscathed from the tempter? If he didn't have the spirit of Yahweh. And there it is. And so Luke puts that beautifully in order for us. Now brethren and sisters, the Lord knew where his victory would lay. He knew it from several viewpoints. But if you come back to Isaiah 40, which, from which he learnt certain lessons at his baptism, when he came to John, although of course he would have known these things, but he, he had them of course emphasised to him in the baptism wherewith he submitted in John's baptism. And we know that John was telling us in verse 6 that he was the voice in the wilderness, and the voice said, what shall I cry? And the Lord had to come to grips with this fact, which he did, that all flesh is grass, including his. And if all flesh is grass, brothers and sisters, it's going to fade away. But then we read in verse 7 that not only would flesh in his case fade away, but that God would blow it out of existence. The grass withereth, the flower fadeth, because the Spirit of Yahweh bloweth upon it. Surely the people is grass. And emerging from that water, as all flesh is grass, the Spirit got him and led him into that wilderness, it drove him into that wilderness, and it blew upon that flesh with all the vehement force. And coming out of that wilderness was the power of the Spirit, brethren and sisters, and the flesh was blown away. Not out of existence. He carried it with him in his body. But as far as his mind, his heart, his soul was concerned, as far as that greatest commandment was concerned, the Spirit was there with him, and he was blowing upon him in those three ways, of the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he came out loving his, his heavenly Father with all his heart, with all his soul, and with all his mind. So Luke tells us, in full of the Spirit, out of the power of the Spirit, stands up in Nazareth and says, the Spirit of Yahweh is upon me. And so Luke deliberately does that to tell us of these matters. And Peter, in his first epistle, brethren and sisters, quoting Isaiah 40 again, emphasizes this great lesson that it's only by the power of the Spirit Word that we're going to get anywhere in life. There's nothing else that we can do except submit to this Spirit Word. And so Peter tells us that in verse of Peter chapter 2, chapter 1 rather, and verse 23, being born again, he says, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible, by the word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is of grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, but the word of the Lord endureth forever. Now you see, there's a paraphrase of Isaiah 40. Isaiah 40 had said, the grass withereth and the flower thereof fadeth because the Spirit of Yahweh blows upon it. But Peter interprets that by the word of the Lord. That's Peter's interpretation of the Spirit of Yahweh blowing upon it. And we've got this Spirit, brothers and sisters, in our hands. It's a living book we've got hold of. And it's blowing on our flesh and putting us under, of course, a measure of duress. But if we can resist the temptations of this flesh, and let that spirit, with all its force, blow it out of our lives. We shall come forth, says Peter, being born again. And in chapter 2 and verse 2, as newborn babes, we are the sons and daughters of the living God, having been begotten by the power of that spirit word. 
Now, we go back to Mark chapter 1, rather Luke, Luke 4, brethren and sisters, and we read that Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Now, of course, the temptation records of Matthew 4 and Luke 4 are very closely linked to the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. And it would be wise, I suppose, if we just slipped a bit of paper or something in the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy this evening, because we may go back here several times. To see how very much this chapter looms in the temptation of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now he was led by the Spirit into the wilderness, we are told. And what was the purpose of that? Well, according to the chapter, one of, one, one of these chapters which he quotes, the 8th chapter, we read in verse 2, And thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh thy Elohim led thee these forty years in the wilderness. What for? Verse 5. Thou shalt also consider in thine heart that as a man chasteneth his son, so Yahweh Elohim chasteneth thee. The purpose, brethren and sisters, was to determine with Israel a relationship, a father-son relationship. So Israel were led into the wilderness by the Spirit that they might be proven to be sons or otherwise, the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness and the tempter said, If thou be the Son of God. And Paul says in the 8th chapter of Romans, and at verse 14, If ye be led of the Spirit, ye are the sons of God. Now that's how it's run through the Scriptures. He led them in the Spirit to test their sonship. He led him into the wilderness. If you be the Son of God, as many as are led by the Spirit, says the Apostle, they are the sons of God. It's as simple as that, brethren and sisters. Our relationship to our Heavenly Father depends on whether we follow Him or not. Whether we follow that lead or not. So there's one thing that was being done to the Lord Jesus Christ. He would therefore know better than we would ever understand that before He set a foot in that wilderness, He knew what the test was all about, whether it was going to be the Son of God or not. He knew that from the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. So when the tempter suggested to him that he should prove his divine sonship, he was already fortified for that question. And we want to point out this evening as we go through, brethren and sisters, that the Lord, I believe, was absolutely 100% equipped for that temptation. He would know exactly what the tempter was going to say by the very record that he had before him from the 6th to the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy. He would know the order of temptation. He would know everything. And he was fortified against that. He didn't go into that temptation in an empty, sort of an indolent way with his, with his mind half full of this and half full of that. He was absolutely fortified for it. When it came, he resolutely set his mind against it, even though, as we pointed out last Tuesday week, he wouldn't have gone without feeling the temptation. If he had done that, it was a farce. But though the temptation was there and it was real, he was totally fortified to conquer that because he had that record. And he would know I led Israel to the wilderness to see whether they're my sons. And he would know that question was going to come. And he would know, therefore, that that's the very reason why he's there. Because he is the Son of God. Now we learned in Mark chapter 1 that Mark doesn't put it quite like Matthew and Luke. Mark has this other word. And in Mark chapter 1 and verse 12, <coughs> we read here that after his baptism... And immediately, says Mark, the Spirit driveth him into the wilderness. And of course, here we've got something quite different. And we don't get any relief, brethren and sisters, by turning up the Greek word, because the Greek word is ekbalo, which clearly means 
cast out. As a matter of fact, that's how it's generally rendered throughout the gospel records. When Jesus cast out devils, that's the word ekbalo. The meaning of it is very clear because when the Lord took up his thongs in the temple and he drove them out of the temple, that's the same word, ekbalo. He threw them out of that temple. Why does Mark tell us then what Matthew and Luke don't tell us, that not only was he led of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, but he was cast out of that wilderness by the Spirit. Because you see, as he told his disciples in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he asked them that they might be with him in his last trial, and they fell asleep, the principle was, brothers and sisters, the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. And our Lord's Spirit, and he was full of it, was willing to go into that wilderness to follow his heavenly father. And he was more willing than he was reticent. But he was man. And there were things about that wilderness temptation, brethren and sisters, that were repulsive to him. To his flesh. He didn't want to endure temptation any more than you and I do. He was not a show-off. He didn't walk into temptation to prove how good he was. He never thought for a moment that he could, he could expose himself to any weakness and get away with it. Our Lord never thought, and I want to show you that this evening, that our Lord was not like some bravados we have in our meetings who say that by their sheer willpower they can do this and they can do that. He never thought that. And the record is beautiful, the way that it presents his thinking in that regard. The Lord made no provision for the flesh, and yet he was God's son. And there was a certain hesitancy there which, entitled, which required the spirit to cast him forth, to drive him there, as well as lead him there. And in that very fact, brothers and sisters, we have, of course, the very essence of that temptation. Not my will, but thine be done. There are two wills there. One is led and the other one's driven. And you know, in our life, it's made up like that, isn't it? Far better be led of the Spirit than be driven. But sometimes, brothers and sisters, it's very necessary that the Spirit of God drives us to do certain things. Because we may be willing, but our flesh is certainly very weak. Now, it is not without significance that in Mark, and Mark alone, that having been told that he was driven into the wilderness, Mark alone says in verse 13, and he was there in the wilderness 40 days, tempted of Satan, and was with the wild beasts. And you can see, can't you, brethren and sisters, the balance of the comment. Mark puts that there to tell us that that wilderness represented everything the flesh didn't want. It was frightening in there. He was there with the wild beasts. And because we're going to see in that wilderness the very reversal of the failure of Genesis, there is the great contrast. A man and a woman with a nature very good, not biased to sin at that stage, not biased to sin, in a magnificent garden where there were no wild beasts, but he'd named every one of them, fail. And on the other end of the scale, there is anything but a garden. It's a waste howling wilderness. We read that in Psalm 91, which is going to be quoted to him. And he was there with the wild beasts, and he's got a nature biased to sin, and he came out victorious. And there was the reversal of the principles of the Garden of Eden. And we all know, brothers and sisters, the three channels of temptation from Genesis 3, verse 6, which is in the first of John, chapter 2, verses 15 and 16, the apostle tells us that all that is in the world, not something, but all that is in the world, 
The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And there in Genesis chapter 3, Eve was presented with the thought that it was good for food. It appealed to her appetite, her flesh. It was pleasant to the eyes. Like the kingdoms of this world were shining in a moment of time. And it was desired to make one wise like God. To aspire to be like her creator. And he was given the opportunity to leap off the temple and prove before all that God thought more of him than anybody else. The pride of life. And there were the three channels of temptation. These, brothers and sisters, brought about a failure in a beautiful garden. Here was success in a wilderness among wild beasts. And that's why the Spirit drove him there. And as I say, it's not an accident that Mark records is the only one that records the driving aspect and is the only one that mentions the wild beast. And you can see the point that he is making. Now when we come to Luke and to Matthew, however, what we notice is that they, one, of, one of them reverses the order. And of those three temptations, we find that they both record stones being, rather the suggestion of stones being made into bread. But then Matthew follows this order, the coming off the pinnacle of the temple, and then showing him all the kingdoms of the world. Whereas Luke puts those two in reverse and puts the kingdoms of the world there and the pinnacle of the temple here. There's no doubt whatever, brethren and sisters, whose record is in order. It's Matthew. So if you look at Matthew chapter 10 and 11, Matthew chapter 4 rather, verses 10 and 11, you'll see that Matthew obviously has them in order. You see, Matthew records these words in verses 10 and 11. With the word, then saith Jesus unto him, Get thee hence, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Then the devil leadeth him. And Luke doesn't put it like that. There's no finale in Luke's words. Yeah, there is in Matthew. So that when the Lord said to Satan, Get thee hence, he left him. And that's obviously the order in which it was put. So Matthew is the correct order. Why does Luke order it? And I believe, brothers and sisters, that Luke rearranges the order to coincide with the three principal lusts. I believe he deliberately does that. To coincide with the three principal lusts. And if we ask the question, well, why wasn't the Son of God tempted like that? I don't know. But I know that Luke altered the record. Not, not the record, rather. Altered the order. And he altered it to fit in with the three principal lusts. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. And he put it that way. Why do we say that? Well, you look at the last verse we read this evening, Luke 4 and verse 13. And Luke only renders it like this. In Luke 4 and verse 13, he says, And when the devil had ended all the temptation. Now that expression in the Greek, all the temptation, brothers and sisters, in the Greek literally reads every kind of temptation. When the devil had ended every kind of temptation. And it's fairly obvious what Luke is doing. He reverses the order of those two and puts them in the order of the flesh, eyes, the pride of life and tells us that it's every kind of temptation. And Matthew doesn't make that sort of comment because that's really not the purpose that Matthew has. Luke has that purpose. But he might see there encompassing every kind of temptation. And so we read, when we read in Hebrews that the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like we are, the word really in the Greek doesn't mean all points. But in his every conceivable way, it doesn't mean that at all. It means in every type of temptation. 
And brothers and sisters, the Lord Jesus Christ would not have been tempted in every single way in which we were tempted. For example, he couldn't have been. There weren't any television sets in his day. He wasn't tempted with television. Any more than you and I are tempted with the various temptations which tempt each other. What worries me may not be a concern to you. And what's a concern to you may be no concern of mine. But whatever the temptation is, every kind of temptation is there. The flesh, the eyes, and the pride of life. It's all encompassed in that. And that's why I believe Luke made that alteration. Now Luke tells us, brethren and sisters, that he was 40 days tempted of the diabolos. And you could list a whole lot of 40s. Oh, there's 20 or more, I suppose, of how 40 is highly significant. It's significant of a generation. It's significant of probation. There's all sorts of significant concerning judgment. But you know, brethren and sisters, I believe that there's two very specific 40s we've got to keep in mind. And that's when Moses experienced a 40-day fast twice and Elijah experienced a 40-day fast once and they both experienced them down there at Sinai in a wilderness. Not that the Lord was at Sinai, but they were all in the wilderness. And when they appeared on the Mount of Transfiguration, there they were talking together of the exodus which he would accomplish. Moses and Elijah and him. And they'd all gone through a 40-day fast. And one of them was going to accomplish, they all were going to accomplish an exodus. They all had, one of them had accomplished an exodus. One is still going to accomplish an exodus. And the Lord Jesus Christ accomplished an exodus, a going out. Moses led the exodus out of, out of Egypt. Elijah will lead the second exodus back to the land. And the Lord took captivity captive. And you see the point that's being made here, that when he was tempted, 40, when he was tempted for 40 days and he fasted and ate nothing, he would think back to Moses. And Moses did it twice. And still Israel failed. For all the intensity of Moses' concentration upon law and bringing that law down to them, it didn't bring the perfection required. There's Elijah, who in the strength of that meat that he got just south of Beersheba, went to Sinai for 40 days he took. And people say, what a remarkable journey. That was slow, brothers and sisters. Took him a long time to get there. He wasn't as strong as he thought he was. And when he got down there to call down the thunder of God upon his people, nothing happened. And all the concentration of Elijah didn't work out as he thought. And when they stood there in the Mount of Transfiguration, Moses would have said, well, I led the people out of Egypt, but I never got Egypt out of the people. And Elijah would have to report that when he, according to the prophecies got going before on him, that when he leads Israel back into the land, some of the rebels will fall in the wilderness. But our Lord Jesus Christ can stand before his Father and say, of all them that thou hast given me, I've lost none. And his concentration, his deprivation of his flesh, accomplished wonders. Moses left Egypt intact when he took Israel out. The world will still be there when Elijah brings the children of Israel out. But when the Lord took, takes us out of death, brethren and sisters, he takes death captive. He leads captivity Captive. We can't go back. It's gone. There's no more victory for the grave. That's a far greater triumph. And I believe that the Lord's mind would have gone to those two great men. And when he met them later on to talk about an exodus, he would see, brethren and sisters, that whereas how great they were, nothing was perfected by their work. But here's perfection. And here's a concentration. 
And here is a fasting that reaped those wonderful results which never came before. Now it says, he was there tempted of the diabolos. He was tempted of the diabolos, brethren and sisters. Now this is very, very interesting. You know what Israel did, don't you? What Israel did, that when God led them into that wilderness, the purpose was that he would try them. He led the, these 40 years in the wilderness to prove you and to know what's in your heart. You know what Israel did? They reversed the roles. They did that. And in Psalm 95 and verse 9, quoted in Hebrews chapter 3, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, saw my works. There's your three temptations. That's what Israel did to God. They tempted him, they proved him, and they saw his works. And the Lord was asked to make stones bread to prove whether God would be with him, and he saw all the kingdoms of this world. Israel took God into the wilderness and tested him. You say, you couldn't do that? Brethren, do it every day of the week. I do it every day of the week. Well, we wouldn't say it openly, but we do it every day of the week, if we're not, if we're not careful. And don't say people don't tempt God because they do tempt God. Why is God doing this to me? Why doesn't God do this? Why should this happen? Why shouldn't that other person do this because I said that? Why do I have to go through this? How much more prayer do I have to offer? And all day long we're dragging God into the wilderness to put him through that test. And the purpose of temptation was never for that. And that's what Israel did to God. Your fathers tempted me proved me and saw my works. And exactly the same role was reversed in the case of Israel, brethren and sisters. And every time we complain to our Heavenly Father about the lack of his attention, why he doesn't satisfy our desires, and why we can't be like our other brethren, his lack of attention, why doesn't he prove his presence to me when we can't get what we want? Why doesn't God satisfy my wants and when we feel downgraded among our brethren because of our stupidity, because we can't come here on equal terms, we say to God, why doesn't he make them as good as them? And we're dragging God into the wilderness to do exactly the reverse of what he intended with us. And when we come to grips with that lesson, brothers and sisters, we might be the sons of God. And that's the great lesson of life. God never brought into the Israel in the wilderness to be tempted of him, to, for them to tempt him. He brought them there that they might be tempted of, of the diabolos to see their allegiance to him. And you think about that. You give that a lot of thought. And you see how true that is. As we, in our spirit sometimes, weaken beneath the power of temptation and we start to wonder about what God's doing. Be careful about that. Because you're reversing the roles. And that generation, brethren and sisters, was condemned to death forever for doing that. You think about that. He was tempted to the devil. You've seen this transparency before. The best way I know to illustrate what it's like to be tempted to the devil. Hebrews 2.14, Romans 8 and 3, and Ephesians 2 verses 14 to 16 are ample proof, brothers and sisters, of who the diabolos is. For as much as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same. But through there, 
He might destroy him that had the power of death, that is, the devil. And then the apostle says that God, seeing that the law was weak through the, through the flesh, God sending his son in the likeness of the flesh of sin, and by a sacrifice for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And Ephesians talks about in the body of his flesh, that by the cross he slain the enmity. Now you read it the other way now with me carefully. And many of you have seen this before. Those of you who haven't, read it with me carefully. Flesh and blood is the flesh of sin, which is his flesh. He had to put that to death, which was not an ordinary death, but a sacrificial death, because it declared the righteousness of God publicly, in order that the devil might be destroyed, which really is sin in the flesh, which is the real enmity of Genesis 3.15. So the flesh and blood is the flesh of sin, it's his flesh. His death was not an ordinary death, but a sacrifice publicly made, that the devil might be destroyed, which is sin in the body, which is the enmity between God and man. And he was tempted at the diabolist. Now I say, I certainly believe that our Lord needed to be distracted externally, brothers and sisters. I believe that as a matter of principle. But whether he was extracted externally or not, without a shadow of a doubt, he went through that process. And there was in his flesh exactly the same bias and weakness that's in our flesh. And our Lord had to endure that. He was tempted of the diabolos. Because of which the Apostle Peter says this in his first epistle, chapter 4. Because he's the same as us, we need brothers and sisters to concentrate upon his victory. We read in the first of Peter 4 and verse 1, For as much then as Christ hath suffered for us in the flesh, arm yourselves likewise with the same mind. For he that has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. Well, he suffered for us in the flesh. Well, let's arm ourselves, not with the same flesh, we've already got that, with the same mind. And with that mind, what do we do with the mind, brethren and sisters? We open that mind that the Spirit of God might come blowing in And if the Spirit of God blows into our being, it blows upon the flesh and it withers away. There's a conflict of ideals and the flesh will not stand the blast of the Spirit. So Peter says, arm yourself with that mind. And we come back to that temptation. In those days he did eat nothing. Now it's rather strange how this is put. Matthew says he fasted. We're going to compare the records all night between Matthew and Luke because there's little differences which are classic, really. Although this one, of course, really is the same thing, really. Matthew says he fasted. Luke says he did eat nothing. In other words, what they're telling is one says he didn't eat anything. The other one says he deliberately didn't eat eat anything. It was a a deliberate act on the part of our Lord. It wasn't as if he couldn't have got food. Why, brothers and sisters? Why? Because I told you why. He's gone back to Deuteronomy. He's only quoting Deuteronomy. Yahweh suffered them to hunger. So he knows. But if he's going to reverse the roles and demonstrate the failure of Israel in putting his father to the test and submit to his father, he will voluntarily fast. He doesn't have to be suffered to hunger. So he knows what he's got to do. He gets nothing. Now Luke tells us that when they were ended, afterward he hungered. 
That's incredible, you know. You read that quickly, you missed the point. See, brethren and sisters, for 40 days, the need of the body was subordinate to the spirit. He didn't hunger for 40 days. Afterwards, he hungered. Matthew says the same thing. Afterwards, he hungered. So he wasn't hungry for 40 days. How do you do that? Well, you see, he read Deuteronomy. What did Deuteronomy say? It said this. He suffered thee to hunger that you might learn that man does not live by bread alone. Now you think of it, that is a conundrum. You think of it, you read that, and it sounds very poetical, but you actually listen to what it says. He suffered them to hunger that they might learn that man does not live by bread alone. Now if I locked you in that room for ten days, three days, you would come bursting out of that door learning as you've never learned before that man does live by bread alone. You've never learned that lesson so graphically in all your life. You'd come out a bag of bones and say, it would be graphically imprinted upon your mind. But God suffered them the hunger that man might learn he doesn't live by bread alone. So the Lord voluntarily fasted and he wasn't hungry for 40 days. That's incredible. And so intense was that mind that it subordinated the feelings of the body to the power of the spirit word. But you see, brethren and sisters, the point of the record is this. Afterwards he hungered. And I don't want anyone to go away tonight and say, John Martin believes that you can go hungry as long as you like and if you've got the Bible in your mind, you'll never hunger. That's not true. Afterwards he did hunger. You see, it doesn't matter what volume of the spirit we take into our body, it won't change human nature. And in the end, it got to him. That's the point of the record. He wasn't asked to do it for 41 days or 42 days. He had the record a day for a year. Israel, 40 years there, not the day for hunger, they went without food for 40 years, they didn't. But they certainly went hungry because they didn't like the manna. They didn't go very bonded at all. So they went hungry for 40 years. But they were learning to live by God's word. Now he wasn't asked to go any longer than 40 days. If he'd been asked to go any longer, he'd have gone longer. But having gone that long, brethren and sisters, with all the power of the Spirit, it does not change human nature. And afterwards, he hungered. And sometimes when we think about our Lord Jesus Christ as the Son of God with the power of the Spirit and the way that he so quickly and powerfully rejected temptation, sometimes we may even suggest in what we say that our Lord didn't feel temptation. Brethren and sisters, he was hungry. You ever been hungry? Well, it says he was hungry. It's telling us that he felt that temptation very keenly. And there had to be a resistance against that. And a resistance at the very lowest point of his resistance. That's the point Luke's making. He wasn't asked to resist that on the second or the third day. He was expected to go through 40 days unaffected. And when he was... And it hit him with a tremendous force and his body just ached and craved and cried out for food. Then the tempter came to him. That will always happen, brethren and sisters. When I would do good, evil is present with me. That's the principle. Sometimes we blithely go through life and we may not enter into very great temptation, though we might not be aware of it either. 
And then all of a sudden we might get down to the word, we fortify ourselves, and when we think we've got everything in its right perspective, bang, when we would do good, evil then stands alongside. And the test is which is going to win. And the Lord Jesus Christ, having been fortified for those 40 days, he's physically debilitated, he's weak. He's, you can imagine, could you imagine how he'd feel? Just try and think how you would feel after 40 days. And then the tempter came to him. Make those stones bread. I tell you, that would not have been easy, brothers and sisters. After 40 days, your mind would be swimming. You'd be seeing double. You'd have all sorts of crazy hallucinations, if you were anything less than the Son of God, that is. I'm not saying he was like that, but I'm saying we'd be like that. We'd be wandering. We'd probably be dead. But if you could survive that long, you'd be half out of your mind. You'd be mumbling and with all sorts of distractions. You wouldn't know where you were. Make those stones bread. And the concentration of our Lord was put upon those stones. Now look what Luke says. The dialogue says to him in verse 3, If thou be the Son of God. That's interesting. You know why? Well, you see, brethren and sisters, when that came to the Lord, it wasn't as if people said, oh, he would have known that because it was said that on his baptism, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Therefore, he would be fortified. Of course he would. But he, already been, he would have already been fortified for that because he knew from Deuteronomy chapter 8 that the very purpose of making Israel hungry is that God took the trouble because they were his sons. He said that thou mayest remember that as a father chasteneth his son, so Yahweh thy God chastened thee. See the point? If they had not been the sons of God, he wouldn't have been bothered. Now you look at Hebrews 12, brethren and sisters. Here's the question. If you be the son of God, the very temptation was proof that he was. Now here's the point. In Hebrews 12, verses 5 and 6, words you know full well. And where are they taken from? Deuteronomy 8. And in the 12th chapter of Hebrews, in verses 5 and 6, he says, For ye have forgotten the exhortation which, which speaketh unto you as unto children. My son, despise not the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked to him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth, and scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If ye endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son he is he whom his father chasteneth not? And when the tempter came to him and said, If you be the son of God, the Lord's mind was saying, Look, the fact that I'm here, nearly starving to death, proves that I am. Because he wouldn't be bothered putting me through this test if I wasn't. And the cry we have people make, I make it. Why does God do this to me? You know what we're saying, brethren and sisters? We are making a request to be spurious. We don't want to be the sons of God. We don't want God to be bothered. And when that came to him, the 8th chapter of Deuteronomy clearly fixed in his mind, what father is it that doesn't chase his son? And you're asking me if I'll be the son of God? Here's the proof of it. Son though he were, says Paul in Hebrews 5 verse 8, he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. Now if you don't think that his mind is constantly in Deuteronomy at this moment in chapter 8, look at the next thing as he's told. Command that this stone be made bread. And you know, we immediately move on to the point of bread. But listen, what about that word command? 
What did Deuteronomy 8 say? The Lord led thee these 40 years to see whether thou would keep his commandments or not. Temptation, brethren and sisters, the purpose of the temptation was not that we should issue commands. The purpose of the temptation was whether we would keep them. Now, if you listen carefully to what I'm saying, we haven't got off a pattern from the time I opened my mouth because Luke hasn't got off a pattern. You see how Israel reversed those roles? Give us flesh that we may eat. They commanded God to give them flesh. Where is Yahweh? They commanded him to prove his presence. And they kept telling him, we want to see the land. We want to know. We want to see your works. And they were in the wilderness issuing commands. When the tempter said to him, command, he knew straight away, I'm not here to issue commands, I'm here to obey. That's what Deuteronomy said. That whether you would keep his commandment or not. That's important, brethren and sisters. That really is important when you think about it. You know, what I'm saying to you, and I know by my own experience, you can make this a very great practicality in your life. When you endure temptation next time, and you, not so much the, the desire to do wrong, I mean, but the trials in your life, think about that. Don't get to a point of start issuing commands. Don't get in your prayers and start saying to God, why don't you do this? Oh, you wouldn't say this in any words, I know. But you do question him. Don't issue commands to God. You're not there to issue commands. You're there to obey them. Now, what was the command? Luke says to make this stone bread. Matthew said to make these stones, plural, bread. Why the difference? Well, I believe because we've been shown the process of temptation. The Lord's distracted to a little group of stones. Limestones in that area, brethren and sisters, crusted over with the dust, brown dust on top, have a look at it next time you're up near the river or somewhere north in, in Australia here. Have a look at those limestones you see in little clusters and just have a look at them and you see how remarkably they resemble bread. But you see, Matthew says, make these stones. But Luke says, this stone. So you can see what happened. And as the body's craving food, the body would look at those stones and see them like a... And all of a sudden would concentrate upon one loaf. And you can imagine that, as the eyes riveted on one stone, it became almost a loaf of bread. But no way. It is written. It is written. What's written? Well, it was written that man should not live by bread alone. Now, I want to comment upon that, brethren and sisters. You know, why would the Lord restrict himself to Deuteronomy 6 to 8? Two quotations out of Deuteronomy 6 and one out of the, and chapter 8. We'll talk a little bit about this. Why? Why? You think about it. He had from Genesis to Malachi. He's undergoing a temptation. He restricts himself to three chapters in the Bible. Why did he do that? I believe there are several reasons for it. And they're not minor reasons. They are major reasons. There are three major reasons why he did that. First of all, in that section is the greatest commandment of the Lord which all the Pharisees that he left behind him wore on their sleeves of their phylacteries and on the forehead in the, in the little pouches of the law they wore there. Hear, O Israel, Yahweh our God is one Yahweh and thou shalt love Yahweh my God with all thy heart, with all thy soul and with all thy strength. And there are three at channels, brothers and sisters, of service which leave man selfless with no heart left for himself 
no mind left for himself, no strength left for himself, selfless. And that great commandment was in the centre of that, those chapters that our Lord quoted. There it is. And they've all got it on their bodies. And he's got it in his mind. And he knows he's got three great principles to keep which deny self, all thy heart, not some of it, all thy strength and all thy soul. That's the first reason he restricted himself to that section. And the second reason, brethren and sisters, and that first reason, by the way, I believe also contains the, the point about the Pharisees there with the contrast. The second reason is this, that it's in that record that Moses summarizes the failure of Israel in those three points. In those very three points they failed from chapter 6 to verse 8, he makes a summary of it. So the Lord's got it all in summary. So you see what God is doing for him. And it's a marvellous thing, you know, when you think about it. But when you're faced with a given temptation, there's always some section of scripture that you can be fortified to overcome it. And sometimes if you let your mind range over too wide a range of the Bible, your mind isn't capable of concentrating upon any one point of it. But if you can grasp the issue and say, there's the issue, and grab the chapter that you want and fix your mind on that, you'll overcome that issue. Now our Lord had to overcome all temptation, so he quotes the section with all service in it. Grab that section. He knew that's the one he wanted. Furthermore, he knows he's got to reverse the roles He's got to allow his father to tempt him as Israel tempted his father and there's the summary of what they did to him. And the last reason, brethren and sisters, is grander even again. Because you see, in the 10th chapter of Romans, Paul quoting the book of Deuteronomy has this to say about it. So when you think about this, how massive this is, but in Romans chapter 10, when Paul quotes that section, not that section of Deuteronomy, but quoting Deuteronomy, he uses this expression in chapter 10 of Romans from verses 4 to 6. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that's got faith, as that word in the Greek means. So in other words, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that's got faith. Christ demonstrated, brethren and sisters, that law doesn't produce righteousness, faith does. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, then he quotes Leviticus. But in verse 6, but the righteousness of faith speaketh on this wise, and he quotes Deuteronomy. So you see what he's saying? That there are four books of the law. And there's a book of exposition of the law which he says is the righteousness of faith. And I don't believe he's just referring to the 30th chapter of Deuteronomy. And here's why I don't believe it. It's not just something that I fancy. Here's why I don't believe it. Because we learn this, brethren and sisters, and if this is not true, nothing's true. But every aspect of our life, in our obedience to God and our rejection of sin and whatever, the totality of our life, the prototype is our Lord Jesus Christ. Who would ever deny that? He is the prime example. All right, then how do you overcome the world? John says in the first of John, chapter 5 and verse 4, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Did he overcome by law? And then we had to overcome by faith? Is that what Paul, John means? No, he doesn't. There's your prototype, brethren and sisters. He's the end of the law for righteousness 
to everyone that's got faith. Because you see, he quoted the righteousness of faith. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. You think about that. Now, you take the reverse of that. Had Deuteronomy been pure law, we would have been left with this example that here was a man that kept everything perfect according to the details of the law by his concentration upon law and by his strength which he had in law. That's what we would have had him been following, but we don't got to follow that at all because he restricted himself to Deuteronomy. And to that chapter of, of that, that section of those first five books of Moses, which a man wrote in one month of his life, having lived for 120 years, three times 40, and he sat down in one single month and wrote the book of Deuteronomy as if it was a summary of all that the Lord ever said in the spirit of it, and not according to the, to the legislation of law, but the spirit of faith. And that's the record he quoted. And John says, this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. Or as he told his disciples, in the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. How? By faith. So there were three massive reasons why he restricted himself to that record. There were your three principles of selflessness in that chapter, those chapters. There was your failure of Israel summarized in those three ways. And there is your book of faith. And so our Lord is entrenched in that record. And man, he says, et manner that he might learn that he doesn't live by bread only, but by every word of God, says Luke. Come back to that record of Luke and read it with me, brothers and sisters. In the fourth chapter of Luke, Jesus countering that temptation to make that stone bread, said in verse 4, it is written, it is written, he said, which of course was from the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy. It is written, or rather the eighth chapter of Deuteronomy, verse 3, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word of God. You know what Deuteronomy actually says? It says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word which proceedeth from the mouth of God. Proceedeth from the mouth of God. You see, they had reversed that, brethren and sisters. That opened their mouth and said, you give us flesh to eat. And he says, no, I'm going to give you manna that you might learn that you've got, to, you've got to live by that which proceeds out of my mouth and not what proceeds into yours. That's the point. And so they had to go out in the morning and collect that bread which came down from heaven. Didn't literally fall out of the sky, of course, as we realise. It was formed by the power of the Spirit. And in that sense, it came out of the heavens. And there it was formed on the ground. But man would learn he doesn't live by bread alone. And you know, I haven't got time to turn these references up, but it's absolutely staggering. You go to the sixth chapter of John, and Jesus said, Your fathers that eat manna are dead. Moses gave not you that true bread which come down from heaven. I am the bread of life, he said, which if a man eat, he shall not die, but live forever. Now you take natural bread. Where do you read about natural bread when it's in its first instance, brethren and sisters? Listen to it. By the sweat of thy brow thou shalt eat bread. For dust thou art, and unto dust shalt thou return. That's Genesis 3.19. Listen to it again. By the sweat of your brow you shall eat bread. For out of the dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. In other words, we work to eat to die. We labour and toil to eat, to die. And Jesus' point in John 6 was, you don't have to do anything in that sense. God giveth you the true bread from heaven, which if a man live, he shall not die. Look at the contrast. 
If we were to labour over the word of God, taking law only as our God and our own ability and saying to God, give us a law and leave us alone and we'll get, we'll get about it. And by the sweat of our brow, brethren and sisters, we would perish. But if we stand in faith and let God give us something, which we don't labour for in that sense, which is freely given, but if we accept that, we will not die. So you labour to eat, to die, or you stand by faith to receive and live. That's the point that John 6 was making, and that's the point the Lord is making here. So that the manna was given, not brothers and sisters to feed them so much, but to learn, teach them that man doesn't live by bread alone. When Moses finished writing the book of Deuteronomy, this is what he did with it. He put it in the ark like that. And it was brought out every seven years. Every seven years. Now you listen to this. Every seven years it was brought out, but it was brought out on a special day. It was brought out during the Feast of Tabernacles every seven years. You might say, well, that was marvellous because they'd all be there in the, in the great picnic feast. The tables would be spread with all the produce of the, of the land because the seventh month was the end of the summer. All the fruits were gathered in and the Feast of Tabernacles was to celebrate the total harvest. Ah, but wait. Deuteronomy 15 said that it was going to be the year of release in which they bring the book out. And the year of release, brethren and sisters, was a year in which everyone was released from their debts. You know why? Because it was a sabbatical year when no one grew any crops and there weren't any harvest. And so when it came to the seventh year, when the tables were scarcely happening on them, they brought out the Bible that man might learn that he doesn't live by, by bread alone, but by every word which proceeds from the mouth of God. What a remarkable way to impress that upon Israel. But in the lean year, out come the Bible. And when the table was sparse, there it was. And they saw that happen every seven years. And that's what Jesus knew he was being. He knew, brethren and sisters, that that's where the temptation was coming. And he knew how to resist that. And he knew why it was that he was hungry, that he might lean upon his father and not demand from God that he shove things in his mouth, but that he might take out of God's mouth things which would carry him through that temptation that he might learn that the righteousness of faith alone could bring him out of that temptation successful and there's the end of the law for righteousness as far as he was concerned. And so he learnt that wonderful lesson. Now we come back to that fourth chapter of Luke. The devil takes him into a high mountain. Matthew says, an exceeding high mountain. Why would he say that? Well, you see, brethren and sisters, there was here, I believe, a quite a remarkable thing. We, I, from now on, I'm going to have to allude to these references because we haven't got our time. But, oh, gee, look, an exceeding high mountain. Where did you read that before? Well, you see, Ezekiel, who was the son of man, bearing one of the titles of our Lord Jesus Christ, in his 40th chapter and verse 2, it says, the Lord took him to an exceeding high mountain. What did he show him? He didn't show him the kingdoms of this world, brothers and sisters. He showed him a vision of the temple. And the Lord, when he was taken to an exceeding high mountain, would know that Ezekiel went through that experience. What for? Not to see the kingdoms of this world, but to see a vision of the temple. You say, well, what's so significant about that? Well, just this, that it was on the very day. It was the tenth day of the first month of that year that Ezekiel stood on an exceeding high mountain and saw the kingdom of God. And here's the Lord taking an exceeding high mountain, the Son of Man, 
He looks down to the kingdoms of this world. And Ezekiel saw that on the very day that they went out in the paddock and got little lamb and roped him and tied him to a peg, waiting to have his throat cut. On the very day they penned that lamb up, the Son of Man stood on an exceeding high mountain and saw the kingdom of God. And he knew that that's going to happen before that's going to happen. And when this Son of Man goes to an exceeding high mountain and sees all the kingdoms of the world, he knows there's no way that he wants that in contrast to Ezekiel's vision. But he knows to get Ezekiel's vision, he's got to get himself tied up and killed. I believe that that was in the mind of our, of our Lord, brethren and sisters, when that expression was used, exceeding high mountain. Absolutely tremendous. And what does Luke says he saw? The kingdoms of this world. The word in the Greek is oikomeni, habitable. He saw the habitable world. He could have all this world's people. Matthew says he showed him the kingdoms of this world. He uses the word cosmos. He can have this arrangement of things, this order of things, as the word cosmos means. So the Lord was offered, brethren and sisters, rulership over all the people and their arrangements. Would you like to inherit that? His father, would you think his father would offer him the kingdom and say, well, here's son, look, here's the kingdom. All these wonderful people have brought the world to a wonderful situation. Now you step in and take over the authority. Who wants that? And so he was offered the habitable and the cosmos, the arrangement that this people have arranged. That's what he was offered, brethren and sisters. The Apostle Paul in Hebrews 2 and verse 5 says, For unto the angels hath he not given in subjection the habitable to come whereof we speak. And the habitable whereof we speak, says the Apostle, is that world, brethren and sisters, where people will be regulated by God's arrangements. And then the Son of God will be king. Who made me, he said in the 12th chapter of Mark, or Luke rather, who made me, he said, a ruler over you in your present system, he meant when they came to him to divide the inheritance. Who made me a divider of your inheritance? I'm not a divider of this world, but the next. And that's what he was offered. This rulership of the people of this arrangement. And then Luke adds the point. He showed it to him in a moment of time. A moment of time. Now, brethren and sisters, there's no need to say that. The record would have stood alone if he just said he showed him the kingdoms of this world. We would have known that it would have been just a fleeting glimpse, but Luke wants us to know it was a stigma of time. To use the Greek words, S-T-I-G-M-E, not M-A, it's a different word than the other word, stigma, but it still means a pinprick. He showed him the kingdoms of this world in a pinprick of time. That's how long it had been. It was there as God. And if he'd have chosen those kingdoms, brethren and sisters, it was there and it was gone. The kingdoms of this world are transient. You know where we learn that? We'll turn this one up. First of John chapter 2. He showed him the kingdoms of this world in a moment of time. A pinprick of history. And the first of John chapter 2 and verse 17, we read, and the world passes away in the lust thereof. But he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. And you might say to me, well, seeing you're running out of time, why do we turn out the first of John? Well, look at the context. We've quoted that before. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, 
the lust of the eyes and the pride of life, and there he is, going through that, going through those temptations, and he sees the kingdoms of the world in a pinprick of time. And John goes on and says, the world passes away. You make that your choice. You've got this world's people and their arrangements. That's what you got. And all that'll give you is a headache and a heartache, and in a moment of time, death. That's how the mind of the Lord would have worked, brethren and sisters. That's how he'd have thought about it. The world passes away. I'm undergoing those temptations. John's words hadn't been written then, but John's penning those words on the base of his experience. He knows that that was a useless choice to make that choice. And our Lord spurned that, brethren and sisters, absolutely spurned it. And how did he spurn it? Well, first of all, look at verse 6 of Luke 4. The devil has said unto him, all this power, that word is authority, all this authority, Matthew has all these things. You see, isn't it remarkable, the differences in the two records? When you run them down against each other, which of course we're going to produce a book, aren't we Craig, sometime in the history of mankind, where all these records are going to be put together. When you run the two records down, there are very significant differences. So the, so the Diablos is saying, all this power, authority, and Matthew says, all these things. In other words, this habitable, you can have power, authority over the people. And this arrangement, you can have all these things. See? So the words are in contact. So the Lord's offered authority and materialism. Power and things he's offered of this world. And the Diabolos says, I will give them to you, for it is delivered unto me, and to whomsoever I will, I give it. That's a lie. The Lord, brethren and sisters, would know that was a downright lie. Because Daniel chapter 4 and verse 17 had said, that the most high rules in the kingdoms of, 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 of men, and to whomsoever he will give it. And the very words of Daniel here are used to whomsoever he will give it. And if you don't think that that's the context from Daniel is correct, the tempter then says, if you will worship me. And the margin says, fall down before me. And Daniel chapter 3 is about a golden image of this world. And you know what it's all about, brethren and sisters? Here's the context of the Lord, of the, of the, of the Diabolos' illusion. He says, oh, it's, it's and to whomsoever I will, I give it. Daniel had said that. God rules in the kingdoms of men. And to whomsoever he will. Now, the context of Daniel is this. Daniel chapter 2. Gold, silver, brass, iron, iron and clay. Nebuchadnezzar says, Bah to God. All gold. Chapter 3. So when Nebuchadnezzar erected that golden image on the plain of Jura, brethren and sisters, he was saying to the world, I defy the prophecy of God's word. The kingdom will not change from gold, silver, brass, iron and iron clay. It will not change. Bow down and worship it. And here's this Bible I'm telling you, whomsoever I will, I will give it. If you'll fall down before me. And when he made that image, whoever's heard the music had to fall down before him. Exactly that phrase. The Lord knows exactly what he's being offered. Defy prophecy. The world's not going to change. It's good. Man will go on to perfection. No God in heaven and earth can stop it. 
fall down and worship the world. It's permanent, is it? Gold changed to brass, brothers and sisters, to silver and onto brass. It went onto the iron. We've seen that. We're watching the clay. And we wonder sometimes whether the clay and the iron will stick forever. Will they? Don't you dare fall down and worship it because it won't. And that's what's being offered to the Lord here. And they haven't got the power they reckon they got. They can't give you the power. It isn't in their power to do it. Get behind me, Satan. Get thou behind me, Satan. The adversary, brethren and sisters. You know, what he was saying, of course, is in the 16th chapter of Matthew, we won't turn it up either. When Peter stood before him and he said, the Son of Man must go to Jerusalem. He'll be taken by the elders and the priests. He'll be crucified and slain. And on the third day he'll rise again. And Peter stood before him and said, Lord, Lord, pity yourself, pity yourself. And he used the words of the temptation. Get behind me, Satan. Now he didn't mean, I don't believe he meant, brethren and sisters, get behind and follow me. I, mean, I believe he meant this. Peter, you stand there pleading with me to pity myself. I don't want to do that. Get behind. I don't want to hear that. You know what he was doing, brothers and sisters? As like I said earlier, our Lord was not a man of bravado. He never paraded his strength. He didn't believe he had any apart from his God. He never put his flesh on trial. He never gave it even the witness test. And when his best friend was saying, Lord, Lord, take pity on yourself. Peter, don't stand there telling me that. Get out, I can't see you. Why? Because he was an occasion of stumbling. Thou art an offence unto me. Scandal on, an occasion of stumbling. An occasion of stumbling. You stand there telling me that long enough, Peter, and I might stumble at it. You'd be all I can't see you. You know, brethren and sisters, we will turn this up. Romans chapter 14. There's a happy coincidence of scripture here that you'll help you remember these two references. Here's the lesson. Don't tempt, don't tempt God, don't put your flesh on trial. Now, here's our word scandalon used in Romans 14 and verse 13. Let us therefore judge one another, let us not therefore judge one another anymore, but judge this rather, that no man put a scandalon, a cause of stumbling or an occasion to fall in his brother's way. Now, the word there, occasion to fall, is our word scandalon. So the Lord is saying to Peter, Peter, you're an occasion to fall before me. Get behind me, Satan. That's the way to deal with temptation, brethren and sisters. That's the way to deal with it. So in Romans 14, verse 13, there's your cause of stumbling. Now in Romans 13, verse 14, is the lesson of our Lord Jesus Christ. The last verse of chapter 13 says, But put ye on the Lord Jesus Christ, and make not provision for the flesh to fulfill the last day. Get behind that. Don't do, brethren and sisters, what we often do. When there's an object of temptation in a given place and we've got an opportunity to miss it, to get to our destination, take that rostrum as a square piece of wood. The object of temptation is down here on the bottom right-hand corner and we're on the bottom left-hand corner. Our destination is up here on the top right-hand corner. We can go that way or we can go that way to reach our destination. Our destination is the meeting where we're going to hear the exposition of the word. There's your object of temptation. Be it whatever tempts you, in a, in a shop window perhaps, you can go that way or that way. The Lord would have you go that way. Make no provision for the flesh and you won't fulfil the lust behind. Get that behind you. But what do we do? 
We get to this corner and we know what's there. It's burning inside of us. We're going to get to that meeting. We're going to the meeting. Oh, I'm not going past that corner to see that thing. No, I'm going to the meeting. We know we can go that way, but we go that way. You know what happens, don't you? Every time. Make no provision for the flesh and you won't fulfill the lust of it. Jesus didn't stand there with the any anymore with Peter and argue the point as to whether he would or would not pity himself. He said, get out of the way. And he put that temptation behind him. That's the way to handle it, brethren and sisters. Don't dabble with it. Get it out behind you and look straight ahead. And the Lord did that. It is written, he said in Luke. It is written. And he quotes the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy in verse 13. And back in Luke chapter 4, we read that. We don't have to turn to Deuteronomy because here it is. It is written. Get thee behind me, Satan, Satan, for it is written, Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and him only shalt thou serve. Do you know what it said in Deuteronomy? It says when they got into the land, the danger that Israel would be in would be that when God had given them this, that, this, that, that, that they would worship the gods of the land and attribute what they'd got to those gods. And there's an expression used in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it's about verse 10 or about 12, something like that. We bought this quotation, brethren and sisters, which you would have underlined in your Bibles. It goes like this. Some of the things that God would give them, it says this, houses full of good things. You want to underline that in your Bible. Houses full of good things. And we attribute that to Atashi, Sonny, Kelvinator, Lacornius, and all the gods of this world. And we stretch and outstretch each other to buy it from the best fashion house, best furniture factory, something that no one else has got because the gods of this world have made that for us. Houses full of good things. And that's the expression of Deuteronomy chapter 6. And the Lord was offered all those things and all those people if he'd fall down and worship a, a devil who said that the world will never change. It'll always be permanent. will change. And it'll go. With all the good things, it'll go. Well, we come to the last temptation, as Luke records it, that is, in verse 9. He brought him to Jerusalem. Now, you know, you can miss a lot on this record if you just sort of think that some of the words are just padding, brethren and sisters. He brought him to Jerusalem. You know what Matthew says? Oh, he said he brought him to Jerusalem. No, he doesn't. It says he brought him to the holy city. And you see, you put the two together, you see the point. Now, what's he going to test him? He's going to test him, not only to prove he's the Son of God, but to prove it to everyone else. Pride's nothing. Look, brethren and sisters, if I could prove I was the Son of God in private, all right, it would be a very wonderful satisfaction to me and a great encouragement, but my pride would not be satisfied. I'm going to prove it to you. I can't do a thing without you. If my pride's got to be fed, you're going to be necessary. And so where would the tempter take him? To Jerusalem. That's the very site of Messiah's glory. And Matthew says, the holy city, there's not a city like it in the world. That's the place to prove it. Oh, this is going to be a wonderful thing. If we're going to sit upon a pedestal, let's make it in the most prominent place impossible. To Jerusalem or the holy city. And he took him to the pinnacle of the temple. Now the pinnacle of the temple. The Greek word means 
a winglet of the temple. Uh, it's the diminutive word of the word for wing, a little wing of the temple. The word, of course, is used in the sense of a, a high pinnacle, which would be like the top point of a wing, or a gable over a roof it is used. And I believe, brothers and sisters, if you've seen photographs of Solomon's temple, your children took home their models from Sunday school, we always talk about the southeastern corner, where the valley of Hinnom meets the valley of the Kidron, and then flows on down south and curves around down through Jericho into the, into the plain of Jordan. But where the southeastern corner is, where Hinnom's coming down like that and Kidron's down like that, with the pinnacle of the temple here, it yawns away down there for 450 feet from the top corner of Solomon's porch in the, in the, in the temple of Herod. So there's Solomon's porch, the southeastern corner, right up there on the top, 450 feet straight down to the conjunction of Kidron and to Hinnom. But also, right beneath you, Solomon's porch, which would hold, brethren and sisters, in times of festivity, 250,000 people. They took him to Jerusalem, the holy city. And if ever there's going to be a display that I am God's son, plunging down that, that steep place, plunging into the court to step lightly on the floor, son of God quarter of a million people there, brothers and sisters, at the feast day, in that porch alone. But that's where the divers takes him. You know, it's incredible, isn't it? So we want to prove ourselves, we've got to do it in a big way. This is my opportunity. The hall's just about full. Marvellous. Bible school, wherever. This is an opportunity. No one's like us. Who's ever been invited to this school? One of the very best. This is my day. And the divers has got him up there. And you know, brothers and sisters, it was a tremendous temptation. Psalm 91 is brought to bear. This time, the Diabolos quotes the Bible. And the last and the most powerful of the temptations came from the Bible itself. And that is a temptation. It's a very great temptation to use the Bible for one's own personal comfort. We don't like to do anything else but that. We need a holiday. We deserve a break. We've gone too long. We need this. We need that. We need something else. God says we do. It's a very great temptation to say that, brothers and sisters. Do you know what Psalms 91 contains? It says that God is a fortress. So is that temple. You know what verse 3 says? That he would, the Messiah would shelter beneath the shadow of his wings. He's a little winglet up there. He's way on the point of it. But in Psalm 91, he can be under those wings. So whether the temple looked like a fortress or whether he was stood on top of the wing, God's both. He's got nothing to prove. When you go home tonight, you read Psalm 91. He will give his angels charge concerning you. You read that Psalm. It is full of the promise of protection. The whole Psalm is just statement after statement after statement that God would do this. 10,000 will fall at your side, but no, the plague won't hurt you. The arrow that flies by night, in the night, and the flight of arrows will let fly. Everyone will get one stuck in them, but you won't. And so the psalm is, is almost exaggerated in the way that it points to one, one individual whom the plague misses, the arrows miss, the wild beasts miss, everybody misses this one person. The devil says, that's you. Look, nothing can go wrong. All those people drop dead. You won't. 
the Bible's written for you if you're the son of God, that is. That was the temptation that was Now, of course, coming back to Psalm 91, which the Diabolos quoted, he didn't quote all of it. And you know, you can never use the Bible in its true dress for self, brethren and sisters. You've got to alter something. You just have to alter something. And the quotation from the Diabolos, verses 10 and 11, There shall no evil befall thee, neither shall any plague come nigh thy dwelling. That's not his quote. Here it is. For he shall give his angels charge over thee, and they shall bear thee up in their hands, lest thou dash thy foot against the stone. But I had to miss out to keep thee in all thy ways. I had to miss that out. And you're always going to miss something out when you quote the Bible to help yourself. You've got it. You've got it. There's no way around it. If you want the Bible to comfort you, to find an excuse, you'll have to leave something out. Because the Bible will never support you in your own comforts. To keep thee in all thy ways. What were his ways? I'll get, look, keep your hand around about where we are. Psalm 95. Do you only eight? What were his ways? To keep thee in all thy ways. Deuteronomy 8 has said, and this is the great chapter that he's been quoting from along with the other one, verse 2, and thou shalt remember all the way which Yahweh the God led thee. Psalm 95, brothers and sisters, this is his way. It's the way that God led him. Thou shalt remember all the way that Yahweh led you. That's his way. But in Psalm 95, we read that quotation I showed you before when he said in verse 9, when your fathers tempted me, proved me, and saw my works, 40 years long was I grieved with this generation and said, it is a people that do err in their heart and they have not known my ways. And it's because they didn't know his ways, they got God into their service to look after their well-being. But God's ways were to put them under trial that they might serve him. And the diabolos said to the Lord, look, he's given his angels a charge. You leap off there. You won't die. Look, he'll catch you at the very last second because you're his son and he'll give his angels charge over thee. Yes, but the Lord would say, but in all my ways, and my ways are his ways, I am the way. I am the way. And my ways are that he led them all the way. And I've got to remember that. And because I remember it, I don't tempt God. I let him test me. And I've got nothing to prove. There's nothing to prove. I am his son. Now there was the reputation of the reputation of the, of the Diabolos' quote because he left that out. And the Lord took it all in. And he quoted the sixth, the, the sixth chapter of Deuteronomy in verse 16. Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God. Now we won't turn this reference up, but you just... All you've got to do is to get the point is to go back to the 6th chapter of Deuteronomy that says, as they tempted him in Massa, thou shalt not tempt Yahweh thy God as they tempted him at Massa. So, all right, you look at Massa. Look up in your concordance. Where were they, what did they do at Massa? Exodus 17 and verse 7. Right? Now listen to this. Imagine the mind of the Lord on this. Exodus 17 and verse 7 said that they tempted him at Massa saying, is Yahweh among us or not? That was exactly the point. You jump off this pinnacle of the temple. It wasn't brethren and sisters so much that he might 
only elevate human pride. But the question is, does God, is his promise valid? Is he among us or not? Let God prove, prove him, see whether he'll appear. That's exactly the point. But you know, it doesn't finish there, brothers and sisters. You listen to this. It's like when that exceeding high mountain, he was put on an exceeding high mountain, and he would have sought back to the Son of Man. He saw that frame of a city on the south. And he, this time he sees all the kingdoms of the world. That's God's arrangement. That's the world's arrangement. That's God's people. This is the world's people. That's his choice. But now you see his mind, the mind of the Son of God, my mind goes like this. So how much further would his go? His mind would go back as you tempted him in matter. And they said, is Yahweh among us not? I've got nothing to prove. I know he is. But you see, brethren and sisters, when they put God to the proof, he did appear. Take the rod wherewith thou smotest the river and the elders of the children of Israel and go to that rock and smite it. And the Lord is thinking, as he refutes that temptation, I'm going to have to prove to this generation that he's here. And I know how it's going to be done. They're going to take me and I'm going to be smitten. And that's going to prove to them that God's amongst them. So while the Lord's refuting the temptation, flashing through his mind, is the means finally by which God will be proved that he loved the world. He is him. And he knows how it's going to be done. What a temptation, brethren and sisters, to get out of that. Knowing how it's finally going to be done by the very chapter where they said, Is Yahweh among us or not? What that rock? Rock gives. And he's that rock. And the elders of Israel are going to crucify him. And he knows that. How wonderful was the Son of God. How absolutely marvellous, brethren and sisters, the ultimate proof would be that. And the Roman centurion stood there and said, truly, this was the Son of God. God is in the world. It was proven, but how painfully. Now that's what the Lord had to do. He not only refuted the temptation, he had to stand there and know how it was finally going to be done. By the very reference which he quoted to prove that he mustn't do this. It's absolutely wonderful when you think about it. And it says, the devil then departed from him. You know, James says this, resist the devil and he will flee from you. You just ask yourself the question, is that true? And you know it is. But the more we're able to resist temptation, the less it becomes a temptation. Won't defi- ever finally depart in that sense. But it'll get less and less. How far do you reckon the devil was from the Lord at the end? Could get no evidence. But you know, it says this, he departed for him for a season. That doesn't mean, brethren and sisters, for a short period of time. The word in the Greek means he departed for him until a proper time. Rotherham says, or the RSV, an opportune time. Rotherham says, a fitting season. The devil never left him. He just got out of the way and knew he could get nowhere with our Lord. He was waiting and waiting and waiting. And then you mark your Bibles up as you flick over your Bible how many times it says and the Pharisees came forth tempting him and the scribes came tempting him and this is done to tempt him and this is done to tempt him. Oh yeah, they all waited for an opportune time. That's what happened, brethren and sisters. They all waited for an opportune time. When the opportune time was there they thought they had him, they come up. They'd make a little plan about the money, the head of the, the image upon the, the money. They never thought about that. But they think, he can't, we got it, he can't, can't escape. If he says we don't pay tax, we run and tell the Caesars. 
If he says he do pay tax, we'll run and tell the people that he's, a, he's, a, he's a not a patriot. He's a non-Jew. He's for the Gentiles. He can't get out of it. An opportune time was there. Fail. As they all failed. But they waited and waited and set up opportunities. Deliberately set them up. One after the other. Never could they get him. The devil doesn't depart. He just waits for an opportune time. You know how the story finishes? Luke doesn't have the final touch. Matthew does. Don't turn to it. You know what it says. And when the devil had departed from him, waited for an opportune time, brothers and sisters, Matthew says, and the angels came and ministered unto him. So Psalm 91 was right. He had finished the temptation, all the temptations, every kind of temptation has been endured, lust of the flesh, lust of the eye, the pride of life. He's followed God in all his ways and the angels did come. And he could laugh at the diabolists because Psalm 91 was proven. May not have been done publicly, brothers and sisters. It wasn't done to pander to his pride and it wasn't done while the diabolists was there to sneer in his face either. But they came and he did give his angels charge over him. And so God was there and the proof was shown because the Son of God had walked in all his ways. Didn't put his father to the test allowed himself to be put to the test and proved by being led by the Spirit and urged on by it, brethren and sisters, that he was indeed the Son of God. And as many of us as led by the Spirit, we are the sons of God.